We are continuing our study in the Psalms. We had a wonderful time last time to be able to do some questions and answers. I still have some questions and answers that people have emailed me that I have not yet responded to. Uh, and so I love that time, and I want to do that again. But I want to also this morning just to go back into the Psalms. We heard that this morning from Pastor Duncan. We're going to continue on in our study as well. And I want to direct you towards Psalm 11 as we look at the Psalm of David for our consideration this morning. This is a psalm that was written 3,000 years ago, yet it still seems very, very relevant to us today. And let me read it for you, Psalm 11. I'm going to be speaking from the Legacy Standard Bible. David writes, In Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked... And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. It was the late Francis Schaeffer, who was an American evangelical theologian, philosopher, who once wrote, the Christian influence upon the whole of culture has been lost. It was Leonard Ravenhill, English Christian evangelist, who once wrote, America cannot fall, she has already fallen. It was Pat Buchanan, American author, political commentator, special consultant to President Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, who said of our nation, America is a cultural wasteland and a moral sewer that are not worth living in and not worth fighting for. Our country, it seems, has fallen morally, not worth fighting for. And yet Kevin Swanson, in his book, Epoch, The Rise and Fall of the West, says the following, Mankind, controlled by the unrestrained domination of evil powers, will be mean, murderous, and cruel. The history of the Roman Republic and Empire is an uninterrupted series of murders, treacheries, wicked intrigues, bloody programs, and revolutions. And yet, after this, he says, but the Christians stopped the murder schemes in the Roman Colosseum. Christians stopped abortion and, and infanticide, infanticide. Christians stopped homosexuality and adultery. Christians stopped the murderous intrigue in the courts and among political leaders. Christians stopped cannibalism wherever they found it. Over a thousand years, the change was gradual and unstoppable. No more powerful moral force has ever been unleashed upon humanity than the work of Christ and his people in the Western world, end quote. Now, I bring these quotes before you this morning to open up our time because as we look at Psalm 11, the psalm that I just read, David says in verse 3, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what would happen if the foundations are destroyed? What will the righteous do? In other words, we are faced with the breakdown of law and order within the foundations of culture today. As we are faced with the ongoing attacks from the wicked in every sphere of life, in the times in which we live, it seems as if the righteous one, the man or woman who lives for the Most High God in Jesus Christ, must prepare themselves to live in a world of destruction and decay in such a way that reflects the responsibility to stand firm in their convictions, in the truth, and to never flee from their moral responsibility to be steadfast in the Lord. Never has there been a more timely message than the one that we have today in Psalm 11. Never has there been such a dire need of prescription of this song before us in the culture around us. And never have we seen such a vital, vivid example of the destruction of godly foundations as we see in the age before us. So much so that even Ligonier Ministries just last year sponsored a conference by the title of this same verse in verse 3, If the Foundations Are Destroyed. So the question before us this morning is, how are we as Christians supposed to respond when it seems like the entire world is falling apart? 
How are we who are believers in Yahweh called to react to the crumbling social order when every television program, every social media post openly defies God's foundation for life? It flaunts itself right in our face. It it no longer hides itself behind closed doors. It is open. It is unafraid. It challenges this in the most unrestrained way, the very fibers of the culture. You know this. Probably the most vivid example of this was recently seen in the 65th annual presentation of the Grammy Awards, where two musicians who identify themselves as homosexual, non-binary, transgender performers sang a song on national television titled Unholy, dressed in satanic horns and masks, clothed in blood-red costumes, dancing in overly sexualized moves in front of fire-lit backgrounds, dubbed as a time of worship by the networks, as the lyrics celebrate adultery in the lives of a married man determined to satisfy his lust outside of the home. So from entertainment to politics to education and every other area of culture imaginable, the very foundation of society is being eroded at a breakneck speed like we've never seen before. And believers are stunned and believers desperately need to know what to do and how to react. It was also the case 3,000 years ago in the days of King David of Israel. Though the circumstances are different, the foundations are the same. And so this psalm given to us by the Holy Spirit is informing us how the righteous man or woman should respond when the bedrock beneath them seems to be giving way. So today in Psalm 11, if you're taking notes, we have five reactions, five reactions to the impending destruction of the social order as we know it. Five responses, if you will, of the imminent threat of our culture that David lays before us for our consideration so the believer in Yahweh can honor him and not lose hope. I've titled the message this morning, The Song of the Steadfast. The Song of the Steadfast, because that's exactly what David is singing about to the nation of Israel. How steadfast in heart those who love God are fixed upon God will persevere as the world around them attempts to tempt you to despair. These are five reactions of the believer during times of cultural collapse. First, the believer must declare trust in God, challenge the threats against God, acknowledge the tests from God, remember the terrors of God, and affirm the triumph in God. And I'm going to repeat that over and over again so you can get that. These are five different reactions in seven different verses before us today. So if you're ready, we're going to open up first with the first reaction that the believer is called to, to have during a time of cultural collapse, namely, number one, The believer must declare trust in God. The believer must declare trust in God. And we get that in the very first part of the first verse. David says, In Yahweh I take refuge. In Yahweh I take refuge. This is where it all starts. This is where it all begins. And this is where it ends as well in the life of a saint of God. This is the very first, this is the very last sermon in every hardship for every believer. That being, in light of whatever obstacles are in your life, whatever obstacles lie before you, regardless of the disintegration of the moral fiber of the culture in which we live, regardless of the insanity outside of the believer, Regardless of the instability with even in the church, the believer's ultimate position and the believer's ultimate conviction is that the God Most High will be his only hiding place come what will. It starts there. It has to start there. This is the believer's declaration. This is the believer's last stand. This is our final resolve, the unshakable core belief that regardless of what I see in the situations around me, regardless of what I see in the news, regardless of what I see in the headlines, the saints will trust in the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, and lean not on my own understanding. This is what we see in the very first reaction of the believer to the madness that is before his eyes. Now, we know that it's King David that has written this because the superscription in the heading of this psalm tells us that it is David. 
It is David who is declaring his trust in the one true God, the ultimate ruler, Yahweh, the great I am that I am, the covenant-keeping God. The God of his salvation is his great refuge. And to take refuge in him is a verb here. It means in the very first verse to, to turn aside or away from something to seek shelter or protection in, implying that David is not just declaring his need for physical protection. He is, more importantly, declaring his need for spiritual protection. Some believe he's speaking of the shelter of the temple because, as you heard in the reading that I gave you in verse 4, it says, holy temple. However, the temple of Solomon was not yet built during David's reign, and that was built, of course, during Solomon's reign. So, as we shall see, he's referring specifically to a spiritual stronghold, a spiritual refuge, not a material one, because, listen, his hope is not in the strength of walls. His hope is not in the strength of the walls that protect him or the physical security that might be afforded to him, even as a king. His greatest shelter, his greatest haven, sanctuary, his greatest harbor and place of rest is the reality of the realization that his God, who is the same God, who led the captives free from Israel, who made the captives go away from Egypt, the same God will not abandon him now, for he has promised to never forsake him. It is so important that we start here because this is the confidence of the believer. This is the confidence of every believer. This is the reason we can declare such a trust in God in the midst of turmoil. Because in the midst of certain ruin, in the midst of the plots against life and rumors of war, The God of salvation is not mythology. The God of our salvation is not a figment of our imagination. The God of the Bible is not a wishful thought or an ancient good luck charm. David's God, the one true God, the one that made him and directs him and loves him and promises to him to keep him forever and ever in the hollow of his hand, this is the God that is his shelter. It's also important to notice that the present perfect nuance of the verb here that's not detectable in the English stresses that David's trust has been contained throughout his life and will continue in his life in the world that he sees around him. In other words, before we're going to break down the temptations that David sees here and before we see what he faces and we will, before we examine the reasons that the believer needs to declare trust in the Lord of creation, first we see that the heart condition of David, the heart condition of the king in season and out of season is inside the storm and outside the storm that I will take my refuge in Yahweh because he is my stronghold now and forever. That must be again where we start. He says the same thing in Psalm 18, verse 1 through 3. He says, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So again, we must start here. David starts here. We cannot leave this verse until we have settled some very essential truths in our minds that no one in this room can be justified without being justified in God. You cannot be justified of having no fear in this life without having been justified before God in eternal life. Let me say it a different way. The only person in this room who can see the world around them in its current condition and watch the news and listen to the radio and read the headlines without fear and anxiety and doubt and sleepless nights is the one who has humbled themselves before the God of all creation and has realized that you are accountable before God that made you, that you are allowed, the same God who allowed your birth, who has granted you his word, who has revealed salvation, he calls for your life back. He wants your life. He, he tells you that you are dead without him. He makes you and must make you alive from your sins with him, that there's no stronghold until you firmly are in his grip. That's what you must You must reject all the teachings of this world. You must reject all the voices that tell you that all the religions worship the same God. 
You must reject all the voices that tell you that all love is good love, that loving what God hates is acceptable before him. You have to reject every single voice that tells you that your safety lies in government, that your safety and protection lies in bearing arms, that your satisfaction lies in sexuality or sinful pleasure or worldly success. But instead, listen to this, you must only listen to the voice of God as heard in the word of God in his scriptures, and then you must deny your right to your own life. You must deny your life and lay it down before your creator, Jesus Christ, who alone can forgive you for your sins of unbelief. And that's your true refuge. And that is the first reaction of the believer in a fallen world. That is what he means when he says, in Yahweh, I take refuge. That's how he starts this psalm. And now he's going to impact it with the second reaction. There's a second reaction that a believer is called to have during a time of cultural collapse. Not only are we to declare trust in God, but number two, the believer must challenge the threats against God. Not only are we to declare trust in God, but we are to challenge threats against God. And we're going to see this in verses 1b through 3. David goes on to say in Psalm 11, How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrows upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So here we find in these verses the reason that David is clinging to Yahweh with all his might. Here we have the reason he feels moved to declare his trust in the Lord from the very beginning, namely because there are threats. There are threats against God's provision and protection in his life as a king, and there are threats against the life of all believers in this scenario as well. And the threats come from you in verse 1b, from you, you who say to my soul, how can you say to me? So whoever the you is here, they are from the inside. These are friends. Uh, These are the friends who are dead set on making sure that David's counsel flees away from the wicked men who are ready to kill him and overpower him. Run away from them. That's their counsel to him. He hears them. They're close to him. And these friends, these men and women perhaps, who have an inside track into his life, Those words speak to a soul and challenge his resolve to make God his shelter and shield and the pretense under the pretense of helping him to avoid death and therefore a threat to his faith. And again, I don't know who these people are. We're going to look at this today. Who is it that is saying to his soul, flee from God, flee from the stronghold you have in Yahweh, but they are close to him? They are inside his circle? Or they are those people he listens to enough to be able to tempt him to sway his heart away from trusting God. So who must these individuals be? As always, they are friends, family, figures, and foe. Friends, family, figures, and foe. That's who is a part of all of our lives. Though the text doesn't specify that, I think I want to go through the who of you is in this text. First, let's just consider friends. Who are the friends, possibly those who say to his soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? His closest advisors, his brothers in the Lord, who he sits beside in counsel, the the friends who lean upon him and beside him and whisper into his mind, the people who have a platform in his life and indicate with their gestures for him to come over here for a moment, get away from the crowd, let me plant some ideas into your head, things as they ought to be. These are those individuals that know what is best for you, who have a faith that is weak, but they consider it strong. These are the people who would never, ever assume to to undermine or distract your soul from trusting God, but who throw their own issues of unbelief and untrust or lack of information attempt to sway you from whatever resolve that you may have towards your own their own convictions. There are these people that have good intentions, but nevertheless, they want to convince you that their course of action is the will of God and you need to agree with them or risk being outside the will of God. 
Or maybe these folks aren't your friends. Possibly they're your family. Your family. Yes, we know that means that these are those who share your blood, who are looking out for your good, who may or may not be believers, but they believe themselves to be so. So these are the folks that love you and have grown up with you and perhaps have raised you, but really have their own agendas and their own perspectives about you. They have spent many times the most time with you. They have great insights about you, but they really don't know who you are now. They are speaking to your soul based on who they remember that you were, and not so much based on who you are now. They also want to desire your safety and your ease and your success, but they base those desires on what they want for their own lives. They too have a platform in your life, but many times assume too much in terms of how profound that platform really is. But regardless, they talk and they talk and they talk and they sway and they persuade. Of course, they aren't really friends or family. They could be the next category, figures. Figures, figures. What figures, you might be asking yourself? Those figures in your life that you grant access to. Those figures in the media or figures in history or whatever the context might be that have a platform in your life. They have a platform that you granted them and you are unaware of the influence that they have upon you. They are media figures who also speak into your soul. They are secular and some religious, but they too will tell you to flee the mountain. They will present to you through television shows or podcasts or radio spots a myriad of perspectives that unload massive weight upon your mind. And they try to persuade you of the impending doom that is coming, and they discount survival kits and offer them to you for the goal of advertising and profit margins. The world's coming to an end, and the faithful know that, but they are the ones who speak into your lives, playing upon your fears and heighten your senses of alarm and your vulnerabilities for the sake of advancing their own market share and not your spiritual good. And then there are the unabashed foes. The foes, these are those friends or family or media figures that don't wear masks. They don't have any pretense about them. They aren't secret friends. They are blatant foes. They are nonetheless an influence in your life. They might present themselves to you as believers or they might present themselves to you as unashamedly pagan, but the perspectives that they present before you are so persuasive and the arguments are so insightful that they tempt to make you lay down your Bibles and sit at their feet to listen to their voices in your soul. They used to be believers, they say, but now we have done the deeper work and realized the deeper truth that uncovered the deeper lies that they want to win you over to. So now they've come to a, fully, a more full understanding of transgenderism. They have a wider understanding of homosexuality. They have a firmer grasp of theology than the fathers who had gone before them. And now they too can lead you away from the foundations you once laid hold of to make sure that you're not one of those aimless masses that are swayed to to still cling to the rock of your salvation. These are the threats. These are the friends and the family and the figures and the foes that say to your soul, flee to the mountain. Now, to set these words in their original context, it's difficult to kind of discern exactly what's going on because there's not any internal evidence in this psalm that allows us to place an exact time of composition. But some say it was during the time when David was fleeing from Saul. Some say it's during the time that he is writing this psalm during the escape uh, from his son Absalom. But in those instances, if you remember... David does use mountains and wilderness as places to hide. 1 Samuel 23, 14, David and his men escaped from Saul in the lowlands of Judah. And it says they began to wander from one hiding place to another along the territory of Judah, being the Dead Sea and the mountains of Judah. And 2 Samuel 23, 14 says that in the course of his wanderings, that David's headquarters were on mountain heights. Or, or desert strongholds or, or central mountain regions where he could kind of easily see the enemies that were behind him and below him 
while Saul sought him day and night. So it wasn't as if David had some kind of aversion to fleeing to mountaintops or to caves as we just heard this morning when he believed himself to be in danger. It's here in Psalm 11, however, that the thought of fleeing to a mountain runs against the grain of what David believes is fitting for the one who trusts in God. He, he can't imagine that saying that to his own soul. So the context of this writing doesn't square with the scenario of Absalom or, or Saul. Some point to the fact that in verse 6 of this psalm, that you have fire and brimstone, and verse 1 refers to not fleeing to the mountains, that that perhaps is the exact setting historically of Lot in Genesis 19, where the angels plead with Lot to flee to the mountains before the Lord would bring burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. However, Saul's resistance to go in the mountains doesn't match the circumstances that we have here in Psalm 11. I think it's safest to say that when it says, flee as a bird to your mountain, it's not saying to David, go to a particular mountain that is your mountain that he could call his own. Rather, it says, flee as a bird would flee to its mountain. Run from the wicked that are coming to you. Run away. Don't stay fixed because the wicked are coming. Run and flee like a bird would to its mountain. Again, it says in verse 2, For behold, the wicked bend the the bow, and they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright of heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is their argument to David to make him want to flee. So listen, the threats are real. The wicked are at the gates. The anarchists are destroying the foundations of our society that break down the law and order with its attacks of the wicked. It's true. It's true. This is a godless society. It is wickedness in the high places. But David is steadfast in the midst of all that's going on around him. So here we see those who oppose David in whatever context it might be, literally preparing, verses 2 and 3, for his assassination. They are pulling back their bow and arrow. They are ready to slay him in the dark when he least expects it. Some people have pointed out how this idea of shooting in the dark is an indication of poetry in this scene because not so much the literalness of a midnight execution because the Hebrew word for darkness literally only appears in poetry, like Isaiah 29, 18, Job 10, 22. Spiritual darkness is the idea, spiritual gloom. But you must understand that in David's literal role as a king, the literal military attack, the secret uprising is very real, very likely. And this is not some figment of his imagination, and yet his trust is in the Lord, and his trust will not let him flee from where he is with God. To flee like a bird would be to abandon his role as king of Israel. To flee like a bird would be to give in to the onslaught of the opposition that is dead set to destroy the foundations of the godly, to cut off the influence of the people of Yahweh, the only true God. To have no obstacles to their immorality is why they want him to flee. So that the nations will never know who the true God is is why they want him to flee. To have no interference with their child sacrifices and their worship of idols, with their political corruption, that's why they want him to flee. And David is shocked that they, friends, family, foes, figures, could even dream that he would take their counsel and back down for one second to what he knew would honor the Lord and fulfill his responsibilities before Yahweh. So the big idea is this, to flee or not to flee? That is the question. (laughs) Years ago, late 1990s, there was a man here at our church, loved the counsel of God's word, loved to do that, loved. He had a library full with commentaries from John MacArthur, served in the prayer room, after worship services, encouraging folks from the Bible, family man, husband and father of three children. And as far as everyone could tell, he was a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seemed as if his refuge was in the Lord. And then he became aware of a worldwide scare known as Y2K. (laughs) Y2K, obviously some of you remember, if you're too young to remember, Y2K was the shorthand term for the year 2000. 
And the year 2000 was commonly Y2K used to refer to this widespread computer programming shortcut that was expected to cause extensive havoc as the year changed from 1999 to 2000. As a result, there was immense panic that computers would be unable to operate at the turn of the millennium with the date descending from 99 to 00. The word on the street was that in the press, the worst case Y2K predictions had come true that technology apocalypse would hit at midnight on January 1st, 2000, plunging the world into a new age of darkness. The global banking system would have collapsed. Medical devices would have stopped working. Planes would have fallen out of the sky. Nuclear reactors would have melted down and egg timers would have turned into tiny little bombs because of this fatal flaw in the design of counter-based human technologies. In any event, if you remember, in lieu of what seemed to be a worldwide catastrophe, this man from our church decided to pack up his bags without his wife or children and literally (laughs) fled to the mountains of Utah with ammunition and food supplies to wait out the crisis, never to return to Grace Community Church again. Once the scare was revealed and the sham had been exposed, his faith was seen for what it really was, which was a lie. Now, contrast that. Contrast that with another scenario from Grace Church, that being with our missionaries in Ukraine. When the Russian army literally invaded Ukraine one year ago this month, we received this email from one of our missionaries there. He writes, The internet is so bad I can't stay in touch all the time. We're doing well. We already have got used to living with the sound of gunshots. Some were ready to send a car for us, but we decided to stay for now. Last night, we prayed about it with the family. We saw that we were more in favor of staying for now. Most of the church has not left either. We are also surrounded by unbelieving neighbors who are not going anywhere. Against this background, it is also difficult for my congregation to make the decision to move out. Almost everyone on our street knows that we're believers and that I'm a pastor. And I suppose that with time, our decision may change. But for now, this is how it is. Even as we meet this morning, we know that intelligence in Kiev has warned that the Russian military has amassed 2,000 tanks in preparation preparation for the assault on the eastern regions of Ukraine, and Putin has gathered 300,000 men for the attack, but our missionaries did not flee to the mountains. So the question is, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? More than 50 years ago, the great Bible teacher Arno Gabrielian called this the one burning question of our day in verse 3. The one burning question of our day. In other words, some say, what shall we as believers do when the laws are not upheld? When morality is undermined, evil sweeps through unchecked. What shall we do as believers when the Bible is undermined and the teachings are discarded, when even those in the church seem to be supporting secularism? What shall we do as believers when family values are crumbling and the tide of frequent divorce sweeps through with increasing damage to children and parents and society? What can we do as believers when everything around us seems to be giving way? Some say hide. That is, run away from all that's happening. But David's response here is to take refuge in the Lord and to challenge the threats against God by standing firm. There is a third reaction the believers called to have during a time of cultural collapse. Namely, not only are we to declare trust in God and challenge threats against God, but now, number three, the believer must acknowledge the test from God. The believer must acknowledge the test from God, and we see this in verses 4 and the beginning of 5. Yahweh is in His holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eye, behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous in there. He tests the righteous. Now, as we look at this, when opposition comes fellow believers, when the social order 
is ready to fall. When push comes to shove, in this world, the believer needs to acknowledge in the midst of their most difficult hour that standing firm, standing steadfast in the faith and not fleeing from opposition is best understood in the light that God tests the righteous ones he loves. God tests the righteous. In other words, your confidence in the temptation to acknowledge the Lord is the Lord tests his saints. And David continues to sing about why the believer can find solace in that testing. It says test and testing in the legacy standard. It could mean try. Different Hebrew ideas are there. If the test is the meaning, it would involve God's testing of the righteous by difficult times. And the difficult times are described in the first five verses of the psalm. One commentator writes, The testing of the righteous, verse 5, though it might involve great hardship, would culminate in purity and the removal of dross. Spurgeon thinks the same when he writes that God refines the righteous with affliction. On the other hand, the word can mean try in the sense of inspecting and approving, where the Lord finds them to be what they claim to be, His divine approval rests upon them. But in this context, if you understood the reading of judgment, as we shall see, it's a test. It's the test of the righteous. You know, when I was a boy from time to time, I would be watching television, and out of nowhere, the program I would be watching would be interrupted by a pattern a large circle with four different circles in the corner, and they looked like targets. And you would hear this loud, high-pitched, obnoxious tone following by the phrase, this station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcasting system. This is only a test. It was something that the Kennedy administration had started so that he could address the nation in times of emergency. But to make sure that the system worked, they had to practice practiced the test many times. In fact, it was used 20,000 times between 1976 and 1996. It was a test, a test to see if you are ready for an emergency. It was a test so that our leader could ensure your safety. It was a test to prepare you for what one day might happen. So David is saying here that when the world seems to be giving way, when the wicked seem to be bending their bow to slay the righteous, that the believer, verse 4, must acknowledge that Yahweh is not caught off guard. Yahweh sees all things from his heavenly vantage point, and he sees the righteous, and he peers closely and squints his eyes to make sure that he sees all things concerning the righteous, and that when the foundations seem as if they're crumbling, and when society seems to be slipping away, it is really, in truth, a temporary interruption to our normal viewing privileges because he has initiated a test of the heavenly sanctification system. And he is watching you and watching me and he's allowing this seeming emergency to allow to interrupt your day to affirm your faith. Isaiah 6, we read that even though King Yuza died, and even though a great king was left on the, even though no king was left on the throne at the time, that Isaiah can see, no, the greatest king was left on the throne. The great one who rules from eternity and never ever has to delay his reign. In the year of King Uzzah, is this Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. This is after the king had died and the train of his robe filling the temple and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called out to another saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at once at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filling with smoke. God has not disappeared. God is ruling from on high, as the psalmist tells us. He sees men in their despair, and listen, he tests his own. He tests his own to see if they're going to be faithful to his charge. Yahweh's temple is not on earth. It's holy. It's set apart. It's a holy temple. It's in heaven where he rules, and though he seems distant, When the foundations are rocked and the Teutonic plates of morality seem split, the righteous are before his eyes all the time. 
He never stops seeing those he loves. He is not speaking of those who possess a righteousness by the way of their own. He is not speaking of those who are without sin. He's not talking about the people who are perfect and complete. He's speaking of those righteous ones who have pledged their entire soul into the care of God and have decided in their hearts that come what may, I shall never betray him or move from his precepts because Yahweh is the savior of my soul and the forgiver of my sins. I will stand upon the rock. I shall stand upon it as long as I live. I will take refuge in his protection and his precepts. His love is everlasting. His love is for sure. In other words, when the believer acknowledges that the seeming break in the foundation of culture with its anti-God endorsements and its anti-God blasphemies and its anti-God billboards and advertisements and films and mindsets, that God is testing his children to see who will make him their resting place and make his commands their last stand. There is a fourth reaction, a fourth reaction the believer is called to have in a time of cultural collapse. Namely, are we to declare trust in God, challenge threats against God, acknowledge tests from God? But now, number four, the believer must remember the terrors of God. Remember the terrors of God. And we see this in the second part of verse five and six. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Now, in the midst of all this, it makes us pause, does it not? It makes us have to stop dead in our tracks because David is saying the wicked are not tested by Yahweh. The wicked are not given the opportunity to prove their faith. The wicked are being warned that There is a depth of divine judgment awaiting them that is indescribable and beyond our imagination. Why? Because they love what God hates. They love violence, which refers to a variety of different acts ranging from social injustices to to injurious harm. They love to call for human extinction. They love the corruption of government. They love the promotion of the mutation of children to affect their ideas of gender. They they provide leniency to children, as I was just told in South Africa, to allow them to identify as foxes and therefore to allow them to demand to have litter boxes in their restrooms so that they can accommodate the distortion of their 12-year-old minds. This is the world we live in. And all of this is violence. All of this, not just the spilling of blood and the taking of lives, but the very evil under the sun. And as Davis witnesses the wicked who are pulling the bow of their weapon as tight as they possibly can to put an arrow through his heart, he reminds himself of their end. He reminds himself of the fact that God sees both the righteous and the wicked, and their destiny lies in the same destiny of those who are in Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. That is the punishment that they will drink from. Listen for just a moment to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks of this very same thing in Luke 17, starting in verse 28. It was the same as in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Lord, the Son of Man, is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Peter, in his second letter, speaks again of this same kind of judgment and this same kind of incident as he speaks in chapter 2 regarding what, again, the Lord Jesus Christ has already spoken of in verse 6 of chapter 2. And if he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, 
For by what he saw and heard the righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So David remembers Sodom and Gomorrah. As the foundation of the world of being shaken, he remembers what he uttered in even Psalm 5, 4. Yahweh is not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. So Yahweh, the Bible says, hates the soul who loves violence. God in his holy wrath cannot excuse wickedness. He will not turn aside the foundations as they crumble. He is hating all that is within him, the evil and violence and filth and corruption and the murder and the trafficking and the lying and betrayal and the vile words against him and his Christ. And regardless of what many teachers and churches will teach you, you must understand that the Bible says more about the wrath and justice of God than it does about the love of God. Think about that. In a world that sees God as love alone, the truth is God is love and his just wrath is also just a part of his being as well. Why do people tend to see God as love instead of justice? Because they don't want to think about the justice of God. They don't want to think about the wrath of God. Mankind wants a God that loves them and never punishes them. The unbelieving world, even some in the church, want to peddle a God that overlooks sin. But David says, never, no. God's terror is real and it's horrible. God's justice is like the judge who declares one guilty or innocent according to the demands and God's wrath is like a sword that either executes or excuses the law. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says, God is not altogether such a one as themselves though they may imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened its mouth under them. So when you see Christian report of violence in the nation... When you see abortion rights grotesquely played out before your eyes, when you see Christians mocked and Christ profaned, when you see the church slandered and maligned, just remember the terrors of God and the final end of all who refuse to beg him for forgiveness because David found solace in these things as well. Proverbs 15, 3, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. There's a final and fifth reaction that the believer is called to during this time of cultural collapse. Namely, not only are we to declare trust in God, challenge threats against God, acknowledge tests from God, and remember tears in God, but now, number five, the believer must affirm the triumph of God. Affirm the triumph of God, and we see this in our last verse, verse seven. For Yahweh is righteous, He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Why does fire and brimstone rain down upon the wicked? Why does the terror of God hang over the heads of all who chisel away at the foundations of his precept? Because, verse 7, Yahweh, the only true God, himself is the opposite of all evil. He is righteous, and because he is righteous, he loves all who are righteous, and one day they shall see his face. This is the triumph of God. James Boyce says it this way, David had looked around at the wicked. He had looked up to God. Now he looks ahead to the future, concerned at this point not with the destiny of his enemies, but with his own destiny and of all who trust God. That is destiny. That is the triumph. That is our destiny, the triumph over the evils of this passing world and the triumph of the wonders of seeing our Savior face to face. David said in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. It's imperative that we know as believers that our highest satisfaction, our highest goal will come when we see our God, His Son, Jesus Christ, and when we stand before them in perfect righteousness. 
And it's not what you see transpiring in this world right now. It's not what you see that is of ultimate importance. It's what you see in the world to come that brings everlasting triumph and joy. 18th century hymn writer Fanny Crosby once wrote a hymn titled, In My Savior First of All, where she writes, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side and his smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad songs of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. And those words have special significance when you remember that Fanny Crosby was blind. The first person she would ever see would be Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful hymns that we sing is a hymn titled Before the Throne of God. And it captures this thought and ends as our conclusion today. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior, and my God. Let's pray. Father, we see, as David has written, as your Spirit has inspired, that the foundations will be shaken, that the foundations of this world of every generation, not just our generation, but the ones to come and the ones that have preceded us, have been shaken, and the godly, the righteous, will always be tempted to flee. We will be tempted by those voices around us, beside us, among us. And those voices are to be shunned. Those voices are to be avoided. Those voices are to be given no credit, no due, no weight, because your word is the voice we listen to. And in you we wait day and night, night and day, and we will not retreat from our stronghold. Thank you for this reassurement to our souls that in the midst of the days in which we live when so many things are evil and so little seems righteous, that your word provides for us every good and profitable truth that can make our souls sing with delight even in the midst of the horrors of evil. Uh, galvanize us, Lord. Keep us solid. Keep us standing firm. And let this song be our song, the song of the steadfast. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.